0: Retropod is sponsored by T. Rowe Price. Are you looking to learn a thing or two about getting your finances in order, saving, and investing? Check out The Confident Wallet, a personal finance podcast series by T. Rowe Price and the Washington Post Brand Studio. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, history lovers. I'm Mike Rosenwald with Retropod, a show about the past rediscovered. When Alexander Hamilton sat down to bang out the Federalist Papers in the late 1700s, there were no antibiotics no dialysis machines, and certainly no timepieces capable of taking an electrocardiogram, which, of course, also didn't exist. Well-educated people had average lifespans of around 40 years. And so, in Federalist Paper Number 78, in which Hamilton argues for lifetime tenure for Supreme Court justices, the future Broadway star probably didn't imagine any justice living past the prime of their mental and physical capabilities. Take, for instance, Justice Nathan Clifford, appointed at age 54 in 1858. According to a University of Chicago Law Review article titled Mental Decrepitude on the Supreme Court, when the then 77-year-old Clifford arrived for the fall term in 1880, a colleague wrote this, Judge Clifford reached Washington on the 8th of October a babbling idiot. I saw him within three hours after his arrival and he did not know me or anything. And though his tongue framed words, there was no sense in them. Then there's Justice Henry Baldwin, who after being hospitalized for incurable lunacy in 1832, returned to the court Where he was described by another justice as partially deranged at all times. And get this, he served another decade. Even Thurgood Marshall, the first African-American member of the court, suffered similar issues. In his early 80s, Marshall could not pronounce the word subsidiary from the bench. In a death penalty case, he became so confused that he voted to uphold the death sentence even though he was opposed to the death penalty. He figured it out after a clerk noticed he had voted in an unexpected way. The debate over life tenure on the Supreme Court is an old one, and it typically reappears when justices reach their later years and serious health problems emerge. Artemis Ward, a political scientist and author of Deciding to Leave, The Politics of Retirement from the United States Supreme Court, said in an interview that the issue of age has kind of morphed into something I don't know that the founders necessarily could have envisioned. So how did it happen? Well, it's a long story that starts with a familiar legal word, precedent. Countries older than the United States were handing out life tenures for judges well before Hamilton had the idea, like Britain. So if the Brits did it, the founders thought, why not us too? Where things got complicated is where careers get complicated today, with work-life balance and feeling fulfilled. In the court's very early years, being a Supreme Court justice wasn't the gig it is today. Justices were required to hear cases in other parts of the country, making for some arduous journeys. And they didn't have much power until the Marbury v. Madison decision in 1803 established the concept of judicial review, giving judges the power to rule on the constitutionality of laws and government action. How unattractive was the job? Well, in the early days, some justices didn't even bother showing up for work. John Jay, the country's first chief justice, he left to run for governor of New York. But as their power grew and the job became more cushy, Justices spent more time on the court. And without much in the way of retirement accounts, justices tended to serve longer and longer and longer. So Congress came up with an idea, pensions. That induced some justices to retire, but their pension requirements on age and service were stringent. So Congress addressed this problem by sweetening the retirement jackpot, but then A new problem emerged, according to Ward. Justices began timing their retirements to coincide with presidential administrations more likely to appoint someone like them. The question of how long to hold on, for love of the job and for political reasons, is not one that any justice relishes, and it can lead to some profoundly painful moments for these celebrated jurists and their colleagues. Nobody is immune to age, not even Oliver Wendell Holmes, Jr., one of the towering minds in legal history. In 1932, Holmes was 90 years old and still serving on the court, falling asleep on the bench and increasingly unable to write. Some of the justices decided Holmes needed to retire. Chief Justice Charles Evans Hughes Consulted with Holmes' good buddy, Justice Lewis Brandeis, then paid Holmes a visit. Justice Holmes, Hughes wrote in his memoirs, received my suggestion, which was made as tactfully as possible, without the slightest indication of his resentment or opposition. Holmes asked Hughes to retrieve from a nearby bookshelf the relevant legal statutes. Then, He wrote his resignation and handed it to Hughes, who left crying. Holmes wrote, The condition of my health makes it a duty to break off connections that I cannot leave without deep regret. The time has come, and I bow to the inevitable. I'm Mike Rosenwald. Thanks for listening. For more forgotten stories from history, visit WashingtonPost.com slash Retropod.